Content warning. The following episode discusses gender-based violence, femicide, domestic abuse, and stalking. In 1998, Marilyn McKenna was murdered by Stuart Drury. Drury was tried for her murder and was found guilty, but he appealed the decision, claiming he had been provoked into killing Marilyn because she had been unfaithful to him. This appeal has had a profound impact on our law around provocation through sexual infidelity. Is the law neutral and does it serve us all equally? The Scottish Feminist Judgments Project attempts to answer these questions. Legal academics and practitioners got together to rewrite historical cases through a gendered lens. This episode, we are using Drury's appeal to take a closer look at the impact of history and cultural legacies on our legal system. This is the Feminist Judgments Podcast. I'm Gabrielle Blackburn. Marilyn McKenna lived in the east end of Glasgow with her three children. On the evening of the 4th of September 1998, Stuart Drury came over to her house and knocked on the door. Stuart says he had arranged this with Marilyn ahead of time, but when he knocked on the door, Stuart got no answer. He shouted through the letterbox, but still no answer. After waiting a while, he said he heard some sounds, like people running around inside the house. And then... He saw a blonde-haired man exit the house and run out into the streets, followed closely by Marilyn. Stuart says he knew that Marilyn left a claw hammer outside the house to use to get inside in case she forgot her keys. He found it, picked it up, and chased after Marilyn and the blonde-haired man. He followed them into the next street, where witnesses confirmed they saw the three get into an argument. Stuart saw the man readjusting his shirt. It made him suspicious. He asked Marilyn what was going on. Marilyn replied, What do you think? This confirmed Stuart's suspicion. Marilyn and the blonde-haired man were having sex. Stuart attacked Marilyn with the hammer, hitting her repeatedly on the head and neck. He killed her. The pathologist described the facial injuries as the worst she had ever seen. The fatal blow was to the carotid artery in the neck. Stuart was put on trial. Having killed her in front of witnesses, the court was certain of his guilt. But Drury argued that discovering Marilyn's sexual infidelity pushed him to commit the crime he had. He pled for the partial defence of provocation, which would make his crime culpable homicide rather than murder, making a huge difference in the severity of the sentence he would receive. I'm not a lawyer, or a legal practitioner, so when I first read Drury's case, I was surprised. It was clear that Drury had killed her, and it was clear that the court had plenty of evidence to convict him. What I couldn't quite understand was why Drury was allowed to appeal the initial judgment. It was never in any doubt that Drury had killed Marilyn McKenna, and it was never in any doubt that he was criminally culpable for killing her. The question both for the trial court and for the appeal court was whether he was guilty of the crime of murder or guilty of the crime of culpable homicide. That was Claire McDermott, 
head of the law school at Strathclyde University. I have a particular interest in the law of homicide um, and this partial defence of provocation has always interested me because it seems to say that if you work yourself up into a homicidal fury and you kill someone, then the law will mitigate your actions. It won't let you off completely with your actions, but it will say you won't be convicted of murder, you'll be convicted of culpable homicide instead. In Drury's original trial, the judge applied a proportionality test to decide whether Drury's defense of provocation was relevant. This means he assessed whether what Drury did was proportional to the provocation he had received. This is the test applied in the case of provocation through physical violence. So the judge applied the test. Drury had killed her because she had said, what do you think? His reaction was not proportional. So the judge decided that Drury's plea was not valid. If Marilyn McKenna had punched Stuart Drury on the nose and he'd responded in the way that he did, then the view was that you could weigh those two things up and decide whether hitting somebody seven times with a claw hammer was commensurable with punching them on the nose. I think the answer would still have been no, but there, there is no equivalence at all between saying something and then responding violently. But Drury argued, you can't compare sexual infidelity to violence. These are two completely different things. So how could you decide whether one is proportional to the other? This raised an issue with the point of law. There was no established test for proportionality in cases of provocation through sexual infidelity. No case before had ever raised this question. The court was bound to address this issue, so Drury was granted the right to appeal. Drury's appeal centred around the question of how can we decide what is proportional when it comes to sexual infidelity. Claire, can you tell us a bit about how this appeal went for Drury? Uh, well, it went. The, the appeal was successful in that it was accepted that violence and sexual infidelity are not commensurable, and the appeal court said that the test was about whether you had overreacted to the discovery of sexual infidelity in the way that an ordinary person would have done. So. Killing somebody is an overreaction and the appeal court specifically said that we were looking at what ordinary people did here rather than reasonable people because reasonable people would never kill anybody at all. So a new test was established for sexual infidelity type provocation and Drury's appeal was successful. However, he was then retried and the new trial court applied the correct law of provocation as determined by the appeal court, and he was again convicted of murder. Jury challenged the law on a legal point and won. He successfully broadened the conditions for people to use the sexual infidelity exception. He has contributed to a legacy that impacts Scott's law to this day. From now on, in order for someone to successfully claim provocation through sexual infidelity, they would have to prove that their reaction was that of an ordinary person in that circumstance. As Claire mentions, after winning his appeal, Drury was tried again, using this newly agreed-upon test, to decide on a final verdict. Despite the changes to the test, Drury was still found guilty of murder 
and sentenced accordingly. Some see this as a just ending to a tragic tale. The guilty party got the sentence he deserved. End of story. But some questioned the result of Drury's appeal. While it did not lessen Drury's sentence, it did legitimise the partial defence of provocation through sexual infidelity. Some ask, is this the direction we want Scots law to be taking? Is sexual infidelity a reasonable cause for a legal exception that accused people should benefit from? When Claire heard that the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project were looking for legal professionals to rewrite past judgments through a feminist lens, she raised her hand to rewrite Drury's appeal. The rules of the project were simple. In your rewriting, you can only use tools that would have been at your disposal at the time of the original judgment. This meant you could only use laws, evidence, and social understanding of the world that could have been accessed by the original judge and jury. Claire, you rewrote Jury's Appeal. What made you feel it would be different if you rewrote it from a feminist perspective? So I was of the view that we have to be very careful when we're dealing with ancient law about its fit with the 21st century. What we were dealing with in this case were the institutional writings of Baron David Hume, first put to pen to paper in, I think, 1797. And they had continued to have resonance through being cited in cases. So the doctrine of precedent kind of picked them up and continued to apply them. What Hume said about provocation was that if you were the husband and you came upon your wife in the act of having sexual intercourse with another man and you were so furious that you killed the other man, then you could have the benefit of the defence of provocation. Even Hume was not entirely comfortable with that because the violence-type provocation carries with it some fear. So if the ultimate deceased had punched you on the nose, even if you then get your musket out and shoot them, you might still have had some fear that they were going to continue to attack you. Hume himself noted that sexual infidelity carries no fear. It just creates pure anger in the accused. But he felt that it was such a terrible provocation that you had to give the person the benefit of the doubt. Hume thought that when judging cases of murder, we should allow special concessions for the rage induced by sexual infidelity. If you're wondering why Hume's opinion on this matters, it's because Hume is considered an institutional writer in Scotland, which gives his views on legal matters weight to this day. Chloe Kennedy, senior lecturer of criminal law and legal history expert at the University of Edinburgh, explains. What are called institutional writers, these are authors who wrote texts often hundreds of years ago, which still have authority today, so courts and lawyers can still draw on them. And that's quite a specific feature of Scots law, which can be a hurdle for anybody trying to reshape the law. These writers were not elected representatives tasked by the people to write laws. They were men whose writings shaped Scots law when it was in its infancy, and who have now gained a special status in Scots law as we know it today. The law of provocation through sexual infidelity that Drury was using in 2004 
was first written down in the 1700s. This law is old. And as Claire mentioned, it has evolved since its inception, but only through the process of precedent. The process by which, when judges use the law to make decisions, they re-establish and redefine how the law can be used. And, you know, some areas of law don't have much legislation. So if you think about criminal law in Scotland, still quite a lot of that is common law. And by that we mean we know what the law is by looking at previous judgments. There's no act, no act of parliament you can point to to say, here's what the law of, I don't know, assault is. Unlike other jurisdictions where a lot more of the criminal law has been put on a statutory basis, more legislation is being passed in Scotland to govern criminal law, but it's still largely governed by cases. So, you know, where there hasn't been legislation made, there's perhaps more of an opportunity for judges to shape what the law is, just because it's been kind of untouched by the legislature. The limits around what the partial defence of provocation should be used for has expanded greatly since Hume first voiced his views on the topic. Nothing much happened on this element of the defence of provocation really until 1941, which again is quite interesting, I think. And that was a case called Hill, where the accused was a military police officer and he was stationed in England. And he applied for leave to come home to Scotland because he suspected that his wife was having an affair with another man. Hill got to his house and found his wife there with another man. When questioned, his wife admitted that he was right to be suspicious. She was indeed having an affair. Hill, being a military officer, had his service rifle with him. He used it to shoot his wife and her lover dead in front of his own four-year-old son. Hill pled provocation. His case violated several of the boundaries set by Hume's definition of the original law. This was not a situation where someone walked in on their wife cheating on them and then, due to the shock and anger of discovering this, lost all self-control to the point of killing their wife's lover. Here, Hill was not completely blindsided by the knowledge of the infidelity. He had expected it and killed upon having it confirmed. He had not walked in on his wife cheating on him either. He had simply been verbally told about infidelity. And lastly, he had not only killed his wife's lover, he had also killed his wife. He had murdered two people. So my feeling was that Hill had expanded the law vastly on the say-so of a single judge at the time. And in fact, Gerald Gordon, who is probably the leading commentator on Scots criminal law, he did an analysis of this case as part of his commentary on Drury. And his opinion was that in 1941, no trial court would want to convict a soldier of murder because then they'd have to execute them. And that might have been the reason for the decision. So maybe you could have sidelined it. But in fact, that's not what happened. And then it simply became the case that the discovery of sexual infidelity was enough. And, well, if the law was going to be that, then it needed to liberalise and recognise all types of relationship that is exactly what it did do, and it just kind of expanded and expanded. In the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project book, Claire writes, I have set out the history of the use of the sexual infidelity exception in Scots law, from Hill to the current case. 
it has moved from discovering a wife in the act of having sexual intercourse with a third party to include the not unexpected revelation of sexual infidelity, the communication of this verbally, the killing of the romantic partner as well as or separately from the paramour, the inclusion of relationships other than marital ones, displays of affection such as kissing, and confirmation that the exception may be used by women as well as men. Taken together, these represent a substantial expansion. Hume was careful to emphasise clear boundaries for the sexual infidelity exception. But as Claire mentions, we have gone down a route of tweaking and redefining these boundaries, allowing more and more situations to qualify. We have focused on the detail of when and how this exception should apply, rather than stepping back and asking, should we even have this exception at all? Because this is an area of human relationships and sexual mores, society will have changed considerably. I don't think anybody could argue with that since Hume was first writing. And we did previously have a case in Scots law which did away with what was called the marital rape exemption. So for a long time, the law was effectively that a husband could not rape his wife because she kind of gave a blanket consent at the date of marriage. And in this landmark case, the appeal court had actually said that even if that was the case when Hume was first writing, it, it quite clearly no longer applied. So even within the boundaries of legal doctrine, there was some scope to reevaluate those kind of principles. So my opinion on the case was that it might have been quite helpful to take the opportunity just to get rid of the sexual infidelity exception. When Hume is writing, it was understood as being well, actually, if you go to the writer before Hume, so Mackenzie, who wrote in the 17th century, he discussed this this, this feature of the law as well. Um, and back then, it was almost seen as being about adultery being wrong and having to make a statement about the wrongfulness of adultery. So you've got what was originally a kind of statement about the importance of marriage and fidelity within marriage then evolving to be something more like, well, some people say it's about kind of sexual ownership. And then as we move through time, it becomes more about, well, it's a concession to human frailty. Anybody who found out they were wronged in this way would respond with this kind of violence. So it's only right that the law should not say it's the right way to behave, but it's an understandable way to behave. Some people would say, perhaps violence in the circumstance is understandable because of the emotional distress caused by sexual infidelity. Isn't anybody susceptible to reacting violently upon discovering their partner's unfaithfulness? But how true would this statement be? In the 10-year period between 1989 and 1998, of all the women who were murdered, 57% were murdered by their partner, compared to only 8% of men. In the same time period, 91% of people who killed other people were men. With such stark differences in numbers, a question arises. Who can benefit from this law? And at whose expense? 
Is this truly a concession to human frailty? And what's really interesting, as you say, is there's been this widening out of who it applies to in respect of what kinds of relationships and on the basis of what kinds of evidence. And so this expansion has been perhaps not necessarily thought through or really scrutinized because it's been a series of one judge decisions never really been considered by what we call like the Scottish Law Commission, people who are who whose job is to scrutinize and think about the appropriateness of law for today's needs or the legislature. And so it's kind of just carried on, carried on through time to the point where many people think this is inappropriate, right? Even if you might be inclined to respond with jealousy, we ought to be saying through law that no, you should try to control yourself in this kind of context, but also it's a problem because of what it says about the demands we have on each other when it comes to sexual fidelity and and the kind of ways that in practice it plays out as being quite gendered, the availability of the defence. Is the law taking sides? Have we, inadvertently and over time, developed a law that in effect overwhelmingly benefits men and lessens the seriousness of their crimes at the expense of others' safety? I put to my students very often the question, should we not all be able to control ourselves at least to the extent of not killing another person? Claire writes, in my view, Allowing the discovery of sexual infidelity to justify the return of a culpable homicide verdict on a murder charge is an expression of outdated norms. They encompass the notion of sexual ownership generally and of exclusive rights to sexual access to the body of another. This permits a loss of self-control engendered by a sense of entitlement to provide mitigation of the act of killing. I do not believe that these are norms to which 21st century Scottish society either adheres to or ought to adhere to. We expect our legal system to be fair, just, and above all, neutral. But history has influenced our law's development and our history is not neutral. It is marred with beliefs that we now consider sexist and outdated, Some of these sexist beliefs have made their way into our laws, enshrining them into institutions that perpetuate them. So what do we do with this insight? Do we bin the institutional writers? Do we throw the Preston baby out with the bathwater in order to create a legal system that never looks back? Chloe Kennedy With the institutional writers, first of all, there's been an argument made by a colleague at Glasgow, Andreas Romatian, that perhaps we ought to think of the list of institutional writers as being unfinished. So maybe there are new institutional writers in the making or texts that might be rightly thought of as institutional texts that currently aren't. So a feminist might say, well, let's think about who's on that list. How did they get there? What do they say in their text? Do we want them to be on that list? Like thinking about 
who makes the grade when it comes to being an authority and an authoritative source of knowledge? So I guess a feminist might say, let's think about adding to that list of institutional writers and looking to see how what they've said, the people who are on the existing list, can be used and, and maybe even reworked to reach outcomes that a feminist believes to be better outcomes. Uh, as for precedent, I don't know if I have a very good answer to this because it's such a feature of the way that judges operate that it's not in, it's it's not like inherently problematic. I don't think from a feminist perspective necessarily. You want the law to be kind of certain and predictable. You don't want ad hoc decisions to be made. You don't want as a an accused person to be standing in front of a judge and have no idea what way the outcome is going to go. There's really good reasons for for the existence of precedent. But when it comes to whose interests are protected and whose are ignored, it can be a force for conservative attitudes towards the law, right? It's been like this. That's how it is. That's the authority. That's how things are. Chloe encourages us rather than feeling shackled by our legal history, to use the past as a way to guide the law, to help us improve it. History brings a whole range of benefits to anyone doing theoretical work, both in terms of saying how what we think about now is not the way it's always been. There's a kind of contingency point that it can bring out, but also giving us like richer ideas to draw on. So thinking about how things have been done in the past, looking at patterns of the way laws used, you know, against whom, to whose benefit. And that can give us the skills to critically analyze where we are now and how the law should develop. And I guess for this project, that's the main way I think history is useful is helping us as scholars, as students, pick out patterns of oppression against women, but other groups, and thinking about how law contributes towards those patterns and how we can maybe use law to try and instead stop them happening. We need to actively examine legal history and precedent and question it in light of the unequal impact that it might be having. The institutional writers. Leather bindings cloak ancient texts. Fading robes no longer fashionable, donned nonetheless to warm old bones. If we cast them aside, what will we do? Bury them, burn them. They no longer suit us, can't just be thrown away. As I read the original judgment, I was surprised by how outdated the law was. But upon reading Claire's rewriting of it, what surprised me was not just the law itself, but evidence that Claire chose to include that wasn't included in the original judgment. It felt like a plot twist. Marilyn and Drury were no longer in a relationship when Drury murdered her. In fact, Marilyn had taken multiple measures to legally prevent Drury from approaching her. Setting aside all arguments about whether the sexual infidelity exception is still appropriate today, it seems it should not have been applied at all in this case. Drury's defense of provocation relied on the notion that he was entitled to expect sexual fidelity. The height of his evidence was that they had once lived together for 16 months and that while they no longer lived together, they occasionally slept together. In Drury's eyes, this meant he could expect her to be sexually faithful. Marilyn is not with us to tell us her side of the story. There was, however, plenty of evidence that Drury had been abusive during their relationship. 
there was also a wealth of evidence that Drury had been stalking Marilyn since their breakup. So much so that it was referenced in a Scottish parliamentary debate about stalking and harassment months before the trial. None of this was taken into account in the original judgment. In her reflective statement, Claire writes, Drury stalked Ms. McKenna, at work, at home, and in picking up her children from the nursery. At the time of her death, she was trying to be rehoused out with the area in which he was operating. He had previously assaulted and stalked two other former female partners. Overall, it adds insult to life-terminating injury that in proceeding with this appeal, Scott's law has found that Drury was entitled, I use the word advisedly, to expect that Ms. McKenna would never engage in sexual activity with anyone other than him. Drury was convicted of murder, and this could be seen as justice being served. But we should seriously question the fact that he even had access to this defense of provocation in the first place. Whose evidence is deemed relevant? Whose perspective do we take into account? And whose do we take seriously? Are there gender differences in the stories we tell and the stories we silence in court? We will discuss these questions further in the next episode of the Feminist Judgments podcast. This episode was co-written by Gabrielle Blackburn and Amrita Alwalia McMidis. Interviews, narration and production by Gabrielle Blackburn. We would like to thank Claire McDermott and Chloe Kennedy for participating in these interviews. The full feminist judgment of Drury's appeal, and many others, can be found in the Scottish Feminist Judgments book, edited by Sharon Cowan, Chloe Kennedy, and Vanessa Monroe. The poem you heard in this episode is called The Institutional Writers, written and read by Jill Whittaker. The music in this episode is Absentia, written and produced by Alison Burns. Both were commissioned as part of the project's arts exhibit, which you can discover in the virtual exhibition on the Scottish Feminist Judgments website.